Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. We are a government united, and that is critical because the task before us is great and our runway is short. Albertans are asking us to get this right, to act deliberately and with clear purpose, to not get distracted by our critics who want to see us fail, but we will not fail. Well, that was the Premier this morning uh, talking about the challenges that lie ahead as her new cabinet, which was announced on Friday, was sworn in today. In between was a pretty interesting and significant weekend for the party. Good afternoon, folks. Happy Monday. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on 770 CHQR, and it was over the weekend the United Conservative Party's annual general meeting. An opportunity for the party to deal with some internal matters, but also an opportunity for the Premier and other top officials in the party uh, to have a show of unity to put the message to Albertans that we're on the job, we're connected to the issues that are concerning you, and we're going to address that. The leadership race is over. The next fight, obviously, will be the general election. But are there still some fights going on within the United Conservative Party, within conservatism? Why does Daniel Smith still at times sound like she's running in the leadership race? as opposed to looking ahead to a general election. So it was interesting over the weekend, uh, some of the issues that the Premier went out of her way to touch on, issues that again seem to harken back uh, to the leadership race and even before. Well, maybe there's a reason for all of that. Anyway, joining us for some thoughts on what was, as mentioned, a, a, an interesting and significant weekend is someone who was there to take it all in firsthand, Rick Bell, veteran columnist for the Calgary Sun, calgarysun.com. Joins us on the line here this afternoon. Rick, great to have you with us. Welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, right now, I'm still uh, living off the adrenaline of the event. <laughs> It was quite an event uh, for a lot of reasons, um, you know, just on, on the surface, big picture, you know, a lot of uh, show of unity. Uh, the premier, well, I mean, she touched on some some important priorities, but seemed to touch on a lot of other stuff, too, along the way. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on, on how good a weekend it was for her, for the party? Depends who you are in the party and depends what what she is thinking. In terms of unity, yes, you had people... Uh, who had been her adversaries in the leadership contest, who came to the microphone, introduced her, uh, were very passionate. Uh, you wouldn't find anybody at uh, at the hotel who were, you know, who were, you know, it wasn't like last year where there was a lot of grumbling about the leader, a lot of grumbling about former Premier Kenny. This time, it is true. Everybody was saying, you know, let's give her a chance. Uh, uh, you know, it's, we've only got a few months to go. We've got to be ready. We're still confident. There was somewhat of an undercurrent off, 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 off the record, not against Premier Smith, but just that they feel a bit anxious. They right. feel a bit worried that despite their unity and despite their hopefulness and despite all their wishes and prayers, that um, they 
are in for a hell of a fight and a fight that they may not win. Now, that wasn't the dominant uh, current, but that was an undercurrent. And the dominant current, of course, is, you know, we're all in this together and rah, 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 and uh, we've only got a few months, so let's uh, get going and uh, kick butt. Right. And and certainly in her speech, you know, the premier talked about, you know, big issues like jobs and the economy and inflation and taxes. But there's a lot of focus, obviously, still on the Alberta Sovereignty Act. She seemed to really go out of her way to to wade into some kind of landmine issues, talking about vaccines and Alberta Health Services yeah. and some of this other stuff. So what, what do you make of, of what she's trying to do here? Why she's focusing on these areas she's focusing on? Well, you know, of course, I can't answer for her, but I can say that uh, what happened, and I say it's hidden in plain sight, is the fact that they had the elections of many of the board positions, many of the executive of the United Conservative Party. And there were long, the longest lineups I've ever seen for board elections, which sound like eye-glazingly boring for most people, but there were long lineups, and in those, in that lineup were people I had never seen at a convention before, and I later confirmed had never been to a convention before, had never been a political party member before, and in fact had never been really even involved in politics that much before. Uh, some had never even voted before wow. in an election. And so it was really... Uh, you know, a very different crowd than the part. Now, the party insiders were all there and people have seen at conventions and the sort of establishment of the conservative movement, the UCP. Yes, they were there as well. But the long lineups were because there was a whole bunch of other people, new people. And I talked to them after. and They were very new. Some of them have only been involved since COVID. Mm-hmm. And they got all of the candidates they wanted in. They got in on the executive. Now, you may say, but Rick, that's kind of boring. Who cares who's on the board? The issue isn't just what the board does. It's what this shows. And what it shows is a show of strength. So the big organizer behind this was a guy named David Parker, Take Back Alberta. It's a group. They were involved in the movement to dump Kenny. And sure enough, Kenny is gone. They also were pushing Danielle Smith. Danielle Smith is now in. They then pushed to get on the executive of the party. They succeeded at that. And that caused him to say that this is like the, you know, this is like the old war between Wild Rose and PCs, and this is kind of like the Wild Rose takeover of the party, meaning that the issues that those people in the lineup are interested in include the strongest possible statement on the Sovereignty Act, include a strong insistence on no more vaccine mandates, on no lockdowns, on shaking up Alberta Health Services in a big, big way. So the fact that the Premier talks about those topics passionately and at length in the speech, in the news conference, apologizes to the unvaccinated, says the, anybody in the government who was unvaccinated and lost their job can get their job back. The fact and the Sovereignty Act, she again stated very clearly, it is going to be a substantive uh, a piece of legislation. 
she is, you know, I don't know why she's saying that. I, I mean, I can't read her mind, but you can see the connection between the two things. So her supporters want these issues litigated. They want yeah. these issues front and center and dealt with authoritatively. That's why she also said, Rob, that when her health minister said, never say never when it comes to COVID, she says, I've talked to the health minister and never is never when it right. comes to COVID. Never beating, never restrictions, never closing of businesses or schools or churches. So her strong message, her serving up of red meat to the UCP party faithful happens at the same time, at the same convention as the people who fought to get rid of Kenny fought to get her in and now are fighting for their favorite issues were also successful. Like they're coming out of the convention feeling very, very good. And so we'll see where, where things go from there. It also explains Rob, which we've talked about the strategy of you've got to keep the rural, rural Alberta happy. Because that's where the split would happen. Because this Take Back Alberta guy says, if she pivots, and pivoting in their case, I think, means if she changes her position on things. Yeah, she softens her position. Right. Yeah, and changes it in, in a you know substantial way uh, to the point where it grabs a headline. Then he expresses it this way. If she turns into an Aaron O'Toole, right. she, quote, she might not even survive until the next election. So, to me, that's throwing down the gauntlet. And so I think there's that dynamic going on. I think beyond what she said in the speech, beyond the press conference, there was also, there's also her, you know, her supporters and people who claim they're her supporters. And, you know, that's, that's an agenda different, perhaps, than the agenda of some other people in the party who I think would like now to talk less about COVID, period. Yeah. Well, it, that's the other side of it is, you know, those in the party who might be seen as, as more of the establishment, uh, how nervous or worried or, or anxious uh, are they about all of these developments? On the record, they're not. Off the record... They are hoping that in the hours, days, weeks ahead, the focus turns. And by the way, their hope could come true, and here's how. If, as we get into the winter, which seems to be almost here now, Mm -hmm. uh, if COVID becomes a non-issue, if, yes, maybe there's more people in hospital beds, but if the ICUs don't overwhelm it, and I've been told by the health people that the odds on bet is that COVID will not be like we saw in the fourth wave, for instance. If that happens, well, then COVID will just, of its own accord, start dying, you know, it it start fading away as a story. And then the, 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 the dialogue, the narrative will move to something else, just Mm -hmm. naturally, because it's not grabbing headlines. So people will ask about, are you going to cap electricity prices? Are you going to uh, cancel the, pa- the the fee for Kananaskis country? You know, all these sort of things of government. If, on the other hand, 
the long shot bet comes in, which is that COVID is serious, serious, serious. Then what happens then? And nobody has the answer to that. So this could subside with COVID. Right. I mean, if COVID, be, if COVID truly becomes the flu, becomes flu season, then all of these, all the COVID talk will just dissipate, just on its own accord. Nothing the UCP does, nothing Smith does. Yeah. But so she's making a bet, you know, just like Kenny made a bet on best summer ever. Uh, and then it wasn't the best summer ever. Well, it, it it turned into an ugly end of summer, and then he had to come in and do something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also a wager, but I think the calculation is that it's a much uh, uh, easier wager to make because they believe there's solid, solid indications that the COVID of the past that we've seen in the past will not be the COVID of tomorrow. So if that happens, I think a lot of the COVID talk will stop. I think the Sovereignty Act, you know, it'll get passed and it will be what it will be. And those, that's primarily what, and then that health care will still be an issue. So we'll see where that goes. But all of the other stuff, you may start gaining more prominence just because of the changing landscape. I mean, we'll have to see about that. Yeah, it'll be an interesting fall and winter for sure. Much more, as mentioned, calgarysun.com. Interesting stuff. Rick, great to have you with us. Thanks again for joining us here. Anytime. There you go. That's uh, Rick Bell, columnist of the Calgary Sun, calgarysun.com. His thoughts on what happened at the uh, AGM over the weekend. So you saw, you know, the speech from the premier, the show of support from from... Uh, cabinet ministers and others in the party. But, you know, what was going on behind the scenes was really kind of interesting. So all these seats on the board up for grabs. And it was basically this Take Back Alberta group that, that kind of swept all those contests. Now, these are not necessarily Danielle's people. I think they're supportive of the kind of agenda that, that Danielle embraced. And they're making it pretty clear, though. Uh, David Parker, who's with this group Take Back Alberta, Right, as, as he said to, to uh, Rick Bell, if this premier becomes an Aaron O'Toole-like character, I don't think she would even make it to the next election. And that if she does pivot or soften her stance on some of this, he says, quote, there's a new party already there waiting. It's called the Buffalo Party. It's registered. It has many members, and if it is necessary, it will be used. So an interesting tug of war happening within the party. Those who want to keep Danielle on a more hardline approach on some of this. And I think a lot of others who say, look, we, we need to pivot here. It's one thing to win a leadership race uh, with that kind of a strategy. That's not a path to victory in a general election. And maybe some of the polls we've seen recently have confirmed that. So are they on the right track? What does the right track look like here? Anyway, so your thoughts on all of that, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. Uh, as mentioned, the uh, new cabinet was sworn in today. We'll get to some of uh, that. And the premier taking some questions from reporters. Much more to get to this afternoon. You can reach us, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back with more right after this. realize what's going on in the world of handguns and guns right now the fact that they're in the middle of trying to get a legislation going 
the fact that that legislation is supposed to actually help police. Okay, well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. That is the voice of the commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky. Her voice, as was recorded during a call, a conference call on April 28th, 2020. This is a phone call that has been the source of some controversy after allegations emerged uh, that the commissioner was pressuring RCMP officers in Nova Scotia to reveal specific details about the firearms used by the gunmen in the Nova Scotia massacre because it would help the government advance its gun control agenda. Now, specifically at the time, it was about banning so-called assault-style weapons. You even heard the commissioner make reference to handguns there. So it's pretty clear from the audio that's now emerged from that phone call that Brenda Lucky was speaking favorably of the legislation and had made reference even to a request from the minister's office. Everything that was basically alleged about the controversy that was denied about the controversy seems to be true. Now, this all emerged on Friday. The opposition conservatives have demanded both Commissioner Lucky and Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair resign. Coincidentally enough, Friday was also the day that this so-called national freeze on handguns took effect. Just how political is all of this? Anyway, joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome back to the program, Matt Gurney, columnist and co-founder at The Line, theline.substack.com. Matt, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, man, always good to be here. Okay, so how bad is this for Brenda Lucky and Bill Blair, I guess, by extension, first of all? Yeah, that you know, it's funny. You immediately identified the the ambiguity here and the tension here. I don't know how bad it is for Bill Blair. I don't think it's good, but I don't know if it's that bad. For Brenda Lucky, it should be devastating. I don't know if it will be because we don't live in a country where we have a ton of political accountability and failure isn't really punished. But that audio, and you've already said it, Rob, is a direct literal and explicit corroboration of exactly what Brenda Lucky was accused of months ago and exactly what she has spent months denying. Now, I know the conservatives are linking this to the minister. And hey, like in the sense that the buck stops with the minister, that's that's true. But there's nothing in the recording that, you know, directly implicates Bill Blair. Like what we know is that the commissioner said that, you know, uh, the office wanted some answers on this. They've been asked to provide. Bill Blair can get up and he can go, yeah, of course I asked for an update. Why wouldn't I? Like, mm-hmm. there's no smoking gun, I think, that directly links him to this beyond a reasonable doubt. But Brenda Lucky is on tape telling her officers that she is disappointed with their lackluster enthusiasm in helping the federal government get legislation passed. It's wildly inappropriate. And if there was any justice in this country, she would know that and she'd have resigned. Right. It's political. And she's the commissioner of the RCMP. And I I get that there's some political overlap and maybe that's, you know, part of the the function of of this position, how it's been designed. Maybe she's a little too close to uh, to government and we could perhaps change that. But ultimately, we we shouldn't want and shouldn't have a, a politicized RCMP commissioner, should we? You should never have any cop at any level thinking what can i do to get this politician elected and there's an actual there's an actual interesting nuance here because i know in vancouver i think we saw this and we saw it again in ottawa police associations have been making political endorsements yeah. and and people are i think rightly 
disturbed by that. Now, I, I think there's some nuance there. I think that's kind of a complicated situation because the police association speaks for the best interests of the officers and, you know, how are we going to limit their ability to do that, blah, blah, blah. So let me just try and thread a needle here. If you are someone who is uncomfortable seeing police associations come out and endorse political candidates, I completely respect that. If you are not also uncomfortable hearing a uniformed officer pressure her uniformed and civilian staff to get with the program to help pass some legislation, then there's something very wrong with your analysis or you're a hypocrite. Because maybe you like the gun control measures that were being pushed here. Uh, pushed here. Look, Rob, I'm not asking for anyone to agree with me on the substance of gun control. I'm just asking for a little consistency on whether or not our law enforcement agencies and officers should be involved in partisan politics. Yeah, it, it is a, a balancing act because at some level you could understand a police force, maybe even a police chief or police commissioner saying, you know, these are the kinds of policies that might help us do our job, whether it be fewer guns or longer sentences or whatever the situation we have here where the rcmp the her colleagues in nova scotia are in the midst of trying to piece together this this horrible massacre uh and to have intervened at that point and then to be citing the government's legislation to try to advance the case of that right and and that's where it becomes even more problematic i think yeah and i think you raise an important point it, it is totally legitimate and appropriate for legislators or even the executive to seek police advice, whether it's on how an operation should be handled or how legislation should be crafted. Law enforcement officers and law enforcement experts testify before parliamentary committees, for instance. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. Like It is useful for the government to have that kind of information available. But when we do that, to the greatest extent possible, we do it in full view of the public. We have police chiefs or law enforcement experts who will, who will testify about the substance of an issue or a proposed bill. That's fine. Like that, That's part of the democratic process. But what we were talking about here was not that. And then to your point, the timing of it was awful. And I think, you know, one of the things, Rob, that made me realize months ago, even before I heard this audio, I, I confess to you, I was convinced the news coverage had left no doubt in my mind that the substance of the allegations against Commissioner Lucky was accurate. And I'll tell you why. How did those officers and civilian staff come out of the meeting even knowing there was upcoming gun control legislation, right. which hadn't been announced yet? if Commissioner Lucky hadn't proactively put it on the record. So I was satisfied as to the, the veracity of these claims that nine days after the massacre, the commissioner, instead of providing the local officers everything they need, because we should not forget that a local mountain was killed by the attacker, gunned down in the line of duty during this. In the midst of this, other you know, instead of providing support for the officers who were directly affected or even going in and providing leadership and saying this was a not an acceptable response and I want to know who's responsible. Instead of all that, what we got instead was pressuring the government to get their act together and apply some political uh, – sorry, pressuring the officers to get their act together and go do the government a favor by applying permission here. This is banana republic stuff. It's disgusting, and I don't see why we're having a hard time admitting it.
Yeah. Well, and look, I mean, if Lucky's timing was was poor, then I mean, by extension, I think the timing of the legislation itself was poor. We've talked before about, you know, the politicization of this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, here we are Fridays, this tape comes out and then we get the latest, uh, you know, batch of, of gun control measures from from the government. What does it tell us about how they're approaching these issues? I mean, I don't think, Rob, it tells us anything that you and I and others who watch this file closely have not already determined for ourselves. What it tells us is that the liberals have concluded, probably correctly, that gun control legislation is a really useful political wedge issue for them, and they trot it out from time to time when it is maximally effective to their purposes. And that can mean a couple of different things. It can mean either... Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble, there's some scandal and we need to distract from it. Or it can mean, hey, like we got an election coming up, let's trip up the conservatives who somehow fall for it every time. So there's a couple of different lessons to draw from this, but like nothing the liberals have proposed on the gun control file in the last four years is new or responding to things we weren't dealing with before or responding to new developments and new information and stuff like that. Everything we're dealing with here has been directly correlated to the liberals' political fortunes. I think it's. I think that's disgusting. But these guys keep winning. So I guess what do I? Hey, what do I know? Right? I'm just one voter. Well, I mean, at least one can make the argument that that talking about handguns is more relevant to our crime problems than talking about an arbitrary list of semi-automatic rifles. But this idea of of a freeze on handguns. I don't know if they want to save the idea of a ban for later down the road. Uh, that would at least be more coherent in terms of policy. What, what do you make of this this freeze? I think what? you've nailed it. I think that's exactly it. I think basically, you know, they. You know, one of the reasons, Rob, they have not gone all the way on any of these files and why their actions never match their rhetoric on this one. Because, you know, I'm not one of these people, Rob, who says that they're, that they're not acting within their their jurisdiction here or that they're exceeding their powers. I know there are some court reviews in progress, but it is my expectation that the government is going to win all those court reviews. I think what they're doing is legal and within their authority. But the reason they're doing it so incrementally is so that they always have something left over to reach for the next time there's a scandal or they're down two points in the 905 and they need to get something out to to get the voters excited. And it, it's particularly interesting because I was looking at some granular level polling here. Gun control in general is popular in Canada. It is a, a policy overall that has significant public support, but it has specific support in suburban areas and with women. Would you care to take a guess what is the absolutely indisputable, indispensable voting block for the current liberals that they cannot do without? It just happens to be suburban women. Yeah. Exactly. We'll leave it on that note, Matt. Much more is mentioned. The line, theline.substack.com. Matt, thanks again for joining us. We appreciate it. Hey, take care, man. Anytime. Cheers. Uh, Matt Gurney, columnist and co-founder at The Line, the Substack newsletter. Some uh, interesting thoughts from him on all of this. Let me play you a little bit longer here of the chunk from this uh, phone call. So this is that conference call, August, or rather April 28th of 2020, just days after the massacre. And this is the RCMP commissioner speaking to top RCMP officials in Nova Scotia on a conference call. Does anybody realize what's going on in the world of handguns and guns right now? The fact that they're in the middle of trying to get a legislation going, the fact that that legislation is supposed to actually help police, and the fact that the very little information I asked 
to be put in speaking notes at around 11.30 this morning uh, is when I started this, which was three or more hours before Darren was to speak, could not be accommodated. The fact that I asked eight, almost eight hours before for a chronology and a map couldn't be provided in eight hours, but yet it could be provided on the ninth or 10th hour when it was too late, four days or five days after the event. So does anybody wonder why I feel frustrated or I feel like I'm not being heard, which makes me feel disrespected? Does any Is anybody seeing that or is it just, am I being oversensitive? Okay, so she's obviously upset, which is what had previously been reported. She's citing the federal legislation, which had been previously supported. She's speaking favorably of it. And then she's upset that certain information that she felt would help advance the cause of this legislation hadn't been released. Like This ticking all the boxes of this controversy that had been previously reported and had been at varying points denied. Well, we'll take a time out here. We'll come back. Bill Blair on the defensive and question period today. So we'll get to that. Much more still to come in this hour. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We are back after this. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. The Arrive Can app is no longer mandatory, as you probably no doubt are aware. And as such, some of the controversy has dissipated. But still, there's some lingering questions around this app and specifically how the costs for ArriveCan managed to climb all the way to $54 million. And maybe in the grand scheme of the billions and billions the government's poured out the door responding to the pandemic, $54 million doesn't amount to a whole lot. But originally, the work on ArriveCan started at $80,000. And the Globe and Mail has done some interesting and important reporting on how unusual so much of this is. Not just the cost of an app like this, well beyond anything comparable, but the unusual nature of these contracts. Who did what remains an open question at this point. And this probably isn't the last app uh, that the federal government is going to design. Clearly something needs to change. And we're fascinating piece on all of this today at the Globe and Mail, globeandmail.com. Uh, joining us on the line is Campbell Clark, chief political writer for the Globe and Mail. Campbell, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me. So in your mind, what, what is the most important, outstanding question about the ArriveCan app at this point? Well, I guess there's two. And it's not just about ArriveCan. It's important to point out that these questions kind of apply to a lot of government IT programs. But... This is a pretty good example. One big question is we really don't have any idea what happened here. Like the cost you were saying grew from $80,000 to $54 million, maybe. Even people inside the government don't really know if it's $54 million. (laughs) They're giving us figures. Uh, They're not really sure they've compiled the figures correctly. Those figures, by the way, are all encompassing. They include like employee benefits and travel. They're not really sure if they compiled them correctly. There's people inside government who privately will contest that it is the correct figure. And that's because the whole contracting process was, um, to outside eyes, a mess. Um, You can't really tell what what work was done on ArriveCan and what work was being contracted under the same contracts for something else entirely. Right. 
couple of, of figures in all of this who at least have, have testified before this. They were for a parliamentary committee last week. Uh, yeah. Two guys who run a, an outfit called GC Strategies. Where, where do they fit yeah. in here? Well, this is uh, a company that's what they used to call a body shop, and they're apparently calling them head shops now, which is kind of a funny phrase. <laughs> but basically, they, they staff IT people. And the, the thing that's interesting about this is the government has a IT people of its own to do IT work, and they have a contracting department, an entire department, PSPC. And there's a government IT agency called Shared Services Canada. And yet, they contracted the workout, IT workout, to GC Strategies, who then hired people to go work for the government, which is fine if they need extra help at times, but they charging commissions of 15 to 30%. And we're not talking about just a little bit of temp help here. The, this company billed the government of Canada $44 million in the last two years, and they were charging commissions of 15 to 30%. That's $6.6 million to $13.2 million for two guys working from their homes in Ottawa. Not bad. So $44 million over two years, and that, that's obviously not just work on Arrive Can. That would be other work too then. Yeah, so what they got what they received was contracts for IT work for CBSA, the Canada Border Services Agency. And the contracts don't really say, uh, you know, this is for ArriveCan. They say IT work. I, I, it's a little more complex than that, but basically it's... So they use the same contract for several IT projects, so we don't, in the end, have a clear sense, certainly not yet, of how much went to ArriveCan, how much went to COVID alert, how much went to an accessibility project. And that sort of mixing things up means we can't, it's very hard to tell how much ArriveCan contracts came to, but also whether we got value for money out of this. Right. So just to be clear, so people understand, so GC Strategies didn't build this app. They weren't involved in building the app. They did something that the government probably should be able to do on its own, go contract people to do the IT work. Their job was hiring people to do IT work. And, you know, sometimes that might be necessary, and maybe there's value in that. It's really hard to tell what the value was here, but 30% commissions at the high end here for $44 million in contracts, it tells you... That there's a pro- that there are doing something that the government can't seem to do itself, and if this was just one contract in a pandemic, you could sort of see uh, maybe it was an emergency, but the amount of contracting out of IT projects to consultants staffing out like this has gone up considerably. It's doubled and more than doubled in the past decade, and the size of the civil service is growing, and we know that the government is been incapable of managing major IT projects. So they're essentially, the government of Canada can't figure out how to do it themselves, so they're paying top dollar to get somebody to do it for them. And if it has to be that way, which maybe it doesn't, but even if we accept that it has, there's also a real lack of transparency here, isn't there? So the two things combined are the real problem here, right? If you have sort of um, a, uh, a contracting out process where you have to go to outsiders and pay a high commission, relatively high commission in my eyes, Mm -hmm. and then you don't say what it's for and how it's used, that's a recipe for trouble. I've done a lot of reporting on government contracting over the years, and by the way, most of this reporting was done by Bill Curry, my colleague, it wasn't done by me, but 
you can see the problem there, right? If there's yeah. money being poured out for things and you have no idea what they are and nobody's accountable for what went, what money went to which project, there's a lot of potential for waste, mismanagement, and abuse. And there certainly is a sense here that government officials, and I'm talking about the bureaucrats, they don't really know how to manage IT projects, so they're throwing money at it. Where does that leave the government's own IT people? Because it doesn't seem as though they were involved in this pretty important project. No, they were involved. That's one of the things. Um, basically, these were people working. So, the, again, it was the Canada Border Services Agency that uh, developed the Arrive Can app, and they had their own IT people working on it, but they needed more IT people, so they went to GC Strategies. They did not go to Shared Services Canada, which does IT for the government of Canada. Uh, they did uh, what they did was they asked PC, PSPC, that's the contracting arm, to hire GC Strategies to hire <laughs> coders who put together the app. Working with CBSA, basically we're talking about additional employees here uh, doing the IT work. And that is not something that's fundamentally wrong to hire people from the outside when you need them. It's just that if you're hiring these two guys to bring them in at a 30% markup, you can tell that there's probably some ability to do this uh, on a regular basis a little better or some capacity to do that. Or if it's really value for money, we should at least have a sense of how that's being done. Indeed. Much more, as I mentioned, uh, theglobeandmail.com. Campbell, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. That's uh, Campbell Clark, chief political writer with The Globe and Mail, his piece today. Kind of going through just how problematic this all is. And, yeah, it, it should seem pretty obvious. Again, there's a, a fair question to ask, like, why did this app have to cost so much? I guess if we had the transparency, maybe we could answer that question. So th- the problem is twofold. But, and I guess, you know, good for these guys. That's quite a business they built, these two, uh, who run GC Strategies. So they built Ottawa for $44 million over the past two years. And they say their commissions range between 15 and 30%. That's anywhere between, you know, 6 and 13 million they've made. They're not building apps for the government. They're going to find the people to do it. The kind of thing that the government supposedly is already able to do itself. There's an agency called Shared Services Canada, as Campbell Clark pointed out, and it provides IT support to all government institutions. There is a government department that is specialty is in contracting out public services and procurement Canada. They're supposed to contract. And instead they contracted somebody to contract for them. So that's the weird thing about all of this. Now, who are these guys? Do they have friends in high places? I don't know. And I don't want to infer that. But when you've got a process that's this secretive and this murky and this inefficient, as Campbell Clark writes, writes, it cannot judge, the public cannot judge if money is wasted or abused. The federal government doesn't seem to know what happened either. CBSA officials eventually told reporters the entire budget for ArriveCan, that's the app and the call center, employee benefits, etc., $54 million. The agency broke down the money that went to various suppliers for various purposes, except one of those suppliers said they did not do that work. And so it's not even clear then what happened. So it's a bit of a mess. It, it may or may not be a, a suspicious, kind of fishy kind of mess. 
that has Campbell notes in his piece. For you, the taxpayer, there is no way to know. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.